This message is brought to you by Spirion. The data privacy revolution is the new age of protecting what matters most. Automatically and persistently discover and classify sensitive data with the most accurate solution on the planet. Understand the data within the context of your business and then take actions to control that data so you can operate with minimal friction and comply with the laws and regulations built to protect the personal data privacy of individuals across the globe. This is Spirion, protecting what matters most. Visit them on the web at securityweekly.com forward slash Spirion. The question is simple. Have any of the systems on my network been compromised? The answer is harder than it should be. Enter AI Hunter. Active Countermeasures has automated and streamlined techniques used by the best pen testers and threat hunters in the industry to create AI Hunter, a network threat hunting solution that does the first pass of a hunt for you to identify systems that are most likely to be compromised and scores the results on a scale from zero to a hundred. You can then research those systems in depth with AI Hunter. Focus your valuable time on the systems that need your expertise with AI Hunter. Sign up for a personal demo today at securityweekly.com forward slash ACM. Welcome back, everyone, to Paul's Security Weekly. Make sure you register for our upcoming webcasts and virtual training by going to securityweekly.com. Select the webcast training drop-down menu from the top menu bar. Uh, Gravwell will be our next webcast, cutting through marketing buzzwords and teaching you about collecting and analyzing logs in hybrid cloud environments. We talk a little bit about that, of course, on tonight's show. The webcast will actually walk you through exactly how to do that uh, and dig into some of the details. So we've been leading up to this webcast um, with Graphwell, and I'm very excited about it. Peter Smith is here with us, uh, our good friend, no stranger to the show. He is the founder and CEO at Edgewise, a serial entrepreneur. Uh, one of the more technical founders, of course, that comes on our show to talk about all things uh, zero trust. You can go to securityweekly.com forward slash edgewise uh, and get a, um, a demo, a trial. I strongly encourage our listeners to check it out every time we talk with Peter. I'm like, wait, we, we need that software. Like, we, that, that's important. We should, we should have that. So, Peter, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me again. It's great to be here, even though I can't be in the uh, studio, which is typically a lot more fun. Yes, yes. These are uh, different times uh, that we live in today, of course. Um, I do have to say, Peter, our uh, hosts, I won't go into too much detail, but we evaluate a lot of vendors. Um, and they were singing your praises after we were uh, talking to various vendors this week. And they just came back with like, yeah, Edge, Edgewise does a really good job at this. Uh, so you are, are doing fantastic things. Uh, and we are very excited to talk about what is our topic uh, for this segment, Peter? Oh, man. You know, it's, uh, it's kind of unexpected. So I, I don't have the typical levels of preparation. But I'll, I'll tell you what, the thing that is just standing out to me is uh, customers shifting their strategy to their desktops as people are working from home. Yeah. Uh, one of our customers called up and said, uh, every one of our employees, they typically work at their desk at their, you know, physical desktop workstation. And every single one of them, is taking that desktop home along with their monitors, their keyboards, their mice, wow. and they're setting it up at home. They're putting Wi-Fi USB adapters into the back of the devices so that they can work remotely right. because this is organizations that didn't have laptops. And now you're taking these what used to be fixed function devices and you're saying they're now quote unquote portables. That's a that's a massive shift. And uh, you know, I, I 
I think people are caught a little flat-footed on uh, what sort of protections need to be in place on those systems. And I, I do have to say, as I try not to watch the news all the time and read the news all the time, but you know, when it's on in the House, because we do need to stay informed and make you know intelligent decisions about what we believe and what we don't believe, and a lot of that has gone on in the past couple of weeks, of course, but when I hear the news outlets talking about working from home, red flags go off, right? Just even the basic things about understanding that your Wi-Fi connection is very much separate from your internet connection and how those things will play out is completely missing. And they seem to to just mix all these things uh, together. I I also think that uh, largely the, like the internet's going to crash because we're all working from home. I'm like, whether we work from home or work from the office, like the internet's going to be fine, right? Like your VPN concentrators and such may, you know, see an increased yeah, fall, load. Those will fall over. <laughs> There's some really smart people that created the internet, and I, I have a lot of confidence that the, the internet is going to be just fine with this, just the switch from yep. you know working and, and, in the office and, and, from and, home. And I got to tell you, some of the things that I'm seeing from some of the providers that, like, we, they know people are switching from home, so they're removing data caps, and mm-hmm. some of them they're actually bumping the level of service from this speed to this speed and i'm like well shit you've had all this capacity from in the past and now you're giving it away for free i I am also but i'm also confident that the engineers working for the isps to to handle this capacity and if we all you know know how the internet works and tcp ip like i i I think we're going to be fine right in in terms of that the general sense of things there are certain cases where if you're VPNing back into a central point, that could be problematic, right? If you're not planning for that capacity. Look, we all owe John Postel a, a degree of thanks here. You know, we should pray to the John Postel. Yeah, Vint Cerf. Uh, yep, and and many. And Vint Cerf and uh, Licklider as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Peter. Uh, I hang on, I, Lee. I hang, hang on, on the ISP side. Peter and then Lee. Go ahead. Yeah, we we've seen uh, we've just seen a massive explosion of traffic. Uh, it seemingly happened overnight, where uh, one customer in particular steady steady state connection rate of you know around five thousand connections a second, and all of a sudden it just goes up to twenty five thousand connections per second, and it's because the services they offer, uh, people are concerned. They're logging into the accounts. They're mm-hmm. they're checking. And that just creates a, a, a massive increase in, in load. And that's just one customer. You have to imagine across all of the services that deliver, uh, you know, remote working and, uh, you know, cloud service providers that are, you know, doing um, uh, even Google Docs or, or Office 365, so on and so forth. They're seeing a massive increase in, in load. Mm-hmm. Hold on, Lee. So what I was going to say is the... Um... You know, back at my 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 office is in Livermore, California, which is San Francisco Bay Area, and they're on shelter in place. So not only is my company sending everybody home, all the high tech companies in the area, including companies like Oracle, Chevron, Clorox, Workday, are all their employees are working from home. So what we're seeing in that area. Um, initially we saw some challenges on the VPN, but now what we're seeing is the ISPs are failing. Um, and some people are reverting from say their Comcast account to using their phone as a hotspot. Mm-hmm. And those services are failing too. They're all congested. Um, whereas I'm working away with no problems up here in Idaho because I don't have the same ISP. 
Our, we are connected. The, the, my business, the lab, is connected to its its energy sciences ISP with two 100 gigabit connections. That's not the problem. <laughs> yeah, I think San Francisco is. is are, are you yeah. are you humble bragging right now? <laughs> um, it's not so humble. It's a little bit guilty, but I wanted to make sure I had the scale set. Uh, Jeff. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to lay blame on any provider or application provider or anything yet but uh i was i was supposed to be on a a call yesterday uh for a working group that i'm a part of there was a global working group we were attempting to use webex which is now owned by cisco and they eventually just had to cancel it just because nobody could get on completely and get any kind of audio working and people were trying to dial in on the phone lines and that wasn't working uh and i you know, I think I attributed it to just the increased load that everybody now is trying to do teleconferencing, and it's not necessarily the internet, you know, pipes that are struggling. Mm. It, it, it's it's the infrastructure yeah. around the applications and the services that Agreed. are. Yeah. That, yeah. Just to put it, yeah, in and you, I think I go to. Um, I've got. Sorry, I, I spoke over you. Go for it. Oh, we're all trying to jump in there. Um, I think uh, you know you're. Um, you're going to have winners and losers kind of emerge out of this. Like you, mm. your go-to meeting stuff, um, your Zoom folks. I mean, everybody uh, sees the benefit of trying to scale up and, and handle this load. Uh, and, and it's an interesting test, to be honest. I don't think the ISPs are really going to be the problem, except for the, the smaller mm. uh, kind of ISPs. I mean, I, I, I where I am, I have a local incumbent that dropped the fiber to me and your megabit symmetric and – it's great. I haven't had a, right, uh, but not everybody fortunate is that uh, to have you know uh, ISPs that are uh, that dedicated. Um, yep. There's a lot of shared bandwidth out there. There's a lot of coax out there still, uh, and it's just not quite the same. It's not not universal. The, the, the irony is, is Joff, as you were saying, I haven't had a single dropout. Yeah, you were dropping out. out. <laughs> you were dropping. <laughs> That's neither here. That's nor the there. way it always goes with technology. How, how, how do you know that's my problem? Could be ours. Could mm -hmm. be ours. Yep. True. Yep. Sorry. <laughs> and, and I will say, uh, we you know we've been doing lots of video conferencing and that yeah. type of stuff um, because the kids' karate school has moved to to Zoom and. Yeah, we, same here. We, yeah, we, that, I was shocked by that. I know. I, I wasn't shocked. It's a great thing, and it's been working great for us. We haven't had a single stutter. It's been great. But then again, I only have seventy five up, seventy five down. Mm. But it's business class FiOS. <laughs> So it's business. It's a true 75, yeah, up, it's a 75, true 75, down, 75 sharing, down, yeah. down, dedicated with quality, with a specific quality of service. That, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's but, mine too, right? And then again, I'm, I also pay for QoS. <clears throat> then I pay for that. <laughs> I'm paying for that. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. So, sorry, Peter, you were uh, speak, trying to speak earlier. Oh, no, I, I was just, I was just uh, marveling at sort of how we've shifted uh, our day-to-day -day activities to these, to these platforms. Like I, I was on a call, came downstairs, and I saw my kid doing karate in the living room uh, to an iPad, which mm -hmm. turns out was a Zoom meeting with his karate instructor. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just uh, sort of bonkers how we're how we're reorganizing. So, yeah, Peter, what are the what are the security concerns? You mentioned something I thought was interesting is that there are uh, businesses that. Uh, and we were talking about this uh, earlier, right, that they didn't issue laptops necessarily to their employees, right? 
and they had desktops. And then this crisis happens, and rightfully so, people are, are working from home uh, in, in trying to isolate to get through this, and they're taking their desktops home. What, what does that mean from a security perspective? That's, I, I, like, that's an, an occurrence that... Pretty sure that violates some sort of security policy. Just right? Like that's, the, I would have never oh, yeah, envisioned absolutely. that happening. Yeah. I mean, they, they have to make a business decision, right? They've, yep. they've got a mandate from the governor that they uh, take certain actions. And part of that is about uh, people not being in the same room together. So they're going to go home and uh, it, think about financial services, where oftentimes there are desktops that are deliberately placed there uh, because they don't want those devices leaving right. the office. They do not want it taken home. And now they're faced with this decision. Do we... Uh, how, how do we how do we make people productive, allow them to do their jobs, but they can't be in this physical space? Uh, yeah, of course, they're sending devices home. And these devices were in isolated networks that were deliberately segmented out to 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 protect the devices. And now they're sitting on somebody's open Wi-Fi that doesn't even have a password. Um, of course, there are massive security implications and, uh, you know, people are starting to, to take a hard look at it. Yeah, I can just see that with, with my kids, uh, for example, and going, oh, there's a new PC in the house. Like, can I play games on this? Right? <laughs> and the bad things that could happen as a result. You take, you take that a step further, though, mention, and, which... and you start to think about you know, you have kids' iPads or you have your wife's computer that she looks on Pinterest all day with. These things are connected to the same local network. You're relying on mm. consumer-grade protections from firewalls and ISPs that are typically not designed to handle, like, denial of service or um, even some of the security aspects. This is all – all these different devices are coming under – uh, from a, a corporate really hard exterior to a really soft exterior and a lot of hostile devices. And from an attacker's standpoint, that makes it very difficult as well because we're not targeting an individual company that has a certain IP range. We're targeting you know thousands of remote workers now. So this becomes a, a kind of a, a difficult situation where targets of opportunity, I think, are going to pop up where an attacker may have malware or something on a computer and then notices a corporate device uh, on the local network all of a sudden, and now you're running into uh, conditions where different corporations are becoming breached based off of just target of opportunity. I, yeah, I, I mean, it, I think it opened I don't, up. You, you, you couldn't have put it better. Um, think about the amount of centralized capacity for um, uh, inspecting traffic, looking for anomalous behaviors. I, I remember uh, the previous person that you had, a uh, uh, guest you had, uh, Two episodes ago, he was showing how they collect information about DNS traffic and they analyze it in their SIM, right? Um, well, the centralized nature of getting that traffic and inspecting it, well, the second you take all of these devices and you put them into people's home networks, they aren't going through that egress point. So therefore, your ability to inspect that traffic goes out the window. So uh, sure, there's there's the potential for lateral movement. There's uh, a exposed attack surface on these unprotected networks. There's also the ability to exfiltrate data through now unprotected mm -hmm. egress paths. And the last one I would say is 
just think about the opportunistic attackers that are taking advantage of this scenario. How many emails have you received about COVID-19, about oh, uh, this is your insurance company, this is your you know life insurance policy? This is just absolutely target-rich environment to take advantage and social engineer your way into these devices. And once you're on them, you've got these unprotected VPN gateways that really have very lax policies um, because, frankly, if it's a desktop, they were crafted in such a uh, rapid fashion that nobody really is scrutinizing them. They're trying to get access. They aren't trying to lock it down. So it, it's sort of uh, a, a lot of really bad situations coming together. Many paths externally that are not being scrutinized by the typical mechanisms used in the corporate environment. You've got opportunities for social engineering, exposed attack surface on local networks, and VPNs that were hastily put together mm. to uh, accommodate remote work. That's uh, that's not a good place to be. And you know what I find interesting too is that um, malware that, for example, I don't know if it's TrickBot or Emotet, one of them just came out that it's uh, well, two things. It was the same malware. I want to say it was TrickBot that would look for Wi-Fi networks and try and uh, brute force passwords of nearby Wi-Fi networks. And what just came out this week that I saw was they're uh, going on the local network. And so the malware gets on. TrickBot then tries to RDP into systems and brute force the password, right? You take those scenarios now where you have corporate assets. They're mm -hmm. all moving into the home. And maybe that malware is already there or already has a path in on these other systems. Now they're on the same network as all of these corporate assets. Yeah, another thought I had, because uh, I can't help think PCI, not not this week or next, but uh, Patch Tuesday rolls around in April. How are all these workstations that are now in people's homes getting updates? Mm. Yeah, they're going to get they're going to do better, actually, Jeff. Hey, look, I, I, I want to <laughs> come in. As long as they're configured that way, right, Jeff? For automatic updates? No. I, look, my my um, my my comment is this, right? I mean, the success of remote telework, or what you want to call it, um, in this level of proliferation is going to depend on how well people have architected the network. I mean, the the true matter of the uh, of it is if you actually architected your network to consider the VPN layer as being another module of the access layer of your network, then it should make no difference mm -hmm. that are not on your campus versus being on your campus or branch, right? If you architect your network that way and you threw together your VPN in such a way that it was like, oh, let's just give it access to everything because, you know, VPN is VPN, then you are going to suffer consequences. And even worse, if you deployed your VPN such that you're a split tunnel and and allowing people to access their local network resources as well as uh, talk talk to the corporate network at the same time, then you're just asking for it. Um, and so, um, this really, really depends on the location of the architecture of the networks that are out there. Now, I have, I can tell you right now, a, a number of pretty sophisticated customers, and many of them are feeling relatively comfortable. I'm not saying all of them. Some of them have had to relax the segmentation controls that they had in place due to the proliferation of remote workers because something else is at play here and that is where a corporation might have traditionally had just one group of workers remote let's say it's the sales team all of a sudden they have every group of workers remote and so the requirements completely changed overnight 
Now, if the requirements completely changed overnight on you, you have no choice but just to relax your internal segmentation if you had that, for example. And so that's really where the pain is going to be felt. Not, not well, just I, internal I, segmentation, I, yeah. though, too. Also, external external access, right? So all these places are having to stand up uh, additional external access that they may or may not have provided to all employees. And so by opening these up, we're going to have a whole bunch of mistakes where two-factor is not enabled on a lot of these concentrators, uh, where you're going to end up with VDI environments that – uh, are going to have applications that may or may not have ever been exposed to an external resource. Uh, even exter external applications, you're going to start to see a lot of lacks there where, again, this target of opportunity from an attacker standpoint, we're going to see, I think, a substantial amount of breach data come out in the months following a lot of this isolation and remote work. You're right. The, the, the yeah. pressure is the speed to deployment. Everybody has been forced yeah. into the situation of, Make it work because all of our people are, are at home. Make it work and yesterday. And if you are in you know, network engineering job, your first response is going to have to be, okay, I'm just going to turn on it and I'm going to deal with the ramifications later. Exactly. Well, Jeff, I think your customers are not the norm. I think a lot more companies are going to suffer than perhaps your immediate sphere of influence and i congratulate you and applaud you on that but i, I think uh, i think a lot of companies are struggling and um, I, i'm just still trying to get my head around a workstation going home rather than a laptop going home just the differences in the configuration of a, of a desktop versus a laptop not that i've seen a desktop lately but you know we oh, talked about this a little bit any, last week i don't think it makes any difference i i it's, it's it's that's a null point. You take a why home, it's why just is a that a heavier null point? laptop? <laughs> just a, well, I mean, okay. an organization with this is already going to have its VPN software pre-configured. All right, if you make that assumption, then the image is there. It's going to just work. Oh, you're that's making a, assumptions. A, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that, that's that's a hefty that's a hefty assumption. I right. If they don't, and they're assuming the 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 desktop is is completely 100% always going to be on the corporate network, then yeah, all hell's going to break loose. But there's another factor too, Joff. If, if, if you've, once you get all that traffic going from these now remote systems coming through your VPN concentrators, assuming you're providing a full network connection, that's old school, um, your concentrators may choke with the full tunnel connection and it, and it will be really tempting to turn off, to turn on split tunneling to give your concentrator a break, and I'll bet you a dollar half the companies are doing it. So suddenly that core security control is thrown out the window in the favor of getting the work done during the crisis. Now, yeah, Peter, I want totally right. Peter, I want to ask you a question about uh, split tunneling as it applies to zero trust, right? Because yeah, yeah. it's kind of interesting how that works. We've always had fears yeah. about split tunneling, but basically what that boils down to is an issue of trust. Right. I, I couldn't agree more, and it, it comes down to a fundamental question of do you actually know what's coming across your VPN? Uh, and I would say in most cases the answer is no, no because just like a firewall, uh, no. the VPN is, is, is predicated on this notion that you can trust an address, a port, and a protocol. Right. And I, I think I've, I've come on the show a, a lot, and um, I've tried to make this case that 
uh, address port and protocol has nothing to do with what is communicating. It's merely the means by which communication occurs. It's like us speaking English. That's just how we're communicating, but it doesn't describe me as Peter uh, or mm. you as Paul. Right. So um, really the question is, uh, you now have a massive workforce that is sending all of their communications across this VPN tunnel. Uh, you've likely enabled for flexibility of that workforce so they don't feel like they're, uh, uh, you know, too constrained. You've enabled split tunneling. So it really begs this question, frankly, independent of whether you have split tunneling enabled or not. Uh, what is the true provenance of this uh, uh, connection and what initiated it and what is receiving it? And frankly, you cannot answer that question. Uh, that is the whole purpose of software identity. That's mm. what this is all about. And that's why my customers are asking me to enable our auto segmentation on their desktop environments because they are now shifting their focus and concern at this new egress ingress point, which sure, the VPN was there before, but it certainly wasn't carrying 100% of all of the cor corporate traffic between every employee. Um, so now it is it is a very significant point of focus, and we need to stop thinking of it as uh, trusted connections. Just because it's a VPN doesn't mean it's trusted. In fact, you have no idea what the true origin and true destination of that traffic is. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. That is a good point. I mean, the VPN provides the the confidentiality and integrity of the data, but it doesn't mean anything in terms of the activities of the user itself, right? <laughs> I mean, right. it is, yeah. you know, in a lot of ways, uh, your inside a threat can be your VPN threat and vice versa, right? Um, so, you know, it, it, again, it comes down to, to, to uh, in terms of a lot of things, in terms of scale, in terms of security policy, how well has somebody thought ahead and architected their VPN solutions? Has it been a bolt-on, a band-aid, or has it actually been architected to be seen as another portion of the access layer with the same equivalent security policy as the rest of the network. And the people that are in the latter category are going to do much better, right? They're going to be able to scale. They're going to deal with the security policy issues. I, I would hesitate to guess that most of the population out there is in the former category where they have to rapidly scale and deal with a wide open policy. And that's that's really a scary place to be. Jeff. I, 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 Jeff. Um, we were we were hypothesizing about this very thing. I think on last week's show, uh, I'm curious, Peter. You mentioned that you had a customer today that was taking workstations home. Uh, you know, obviously, don't want you to say who your customer is, but are you able to say what sort of industry they're in, what vertical they're in? Ah. I, uh, I I I shouldn't. Um, okay, no, that's but that's what fair. I'll tell you is that it's. It, it, this is not uh, isolated to one customer. Um, okay. There are a lot of organizations where, for various reasons, uh, desktops are issued. Um, and <clears throat> there's no reason to have a laptop or there are specific reasons to only have a desktop. And they're well, having me, to make me... very difficult decisions. Okay, L let me rephrase the question because we were hypothesizing last week that mm -hmm. perhaps uh, organizations that were higher on the security maturity curve, which tend to be certain industries, but we don't have to mention industries, uh, might be the ones where there are more granular controls like 
you don't really need to have a laptop and take it home with you. Only certain, you know, functions, sales, executives, and stuff like that. Um, can you comment at all on observations about, you know, who you're seeing that still has workstations, not necessarily from an industry vertical, but from, I guess, from a security maturity, uh, the maturity of their security yeah. program perspective? It's, it's an interesting question. Um, I do not track what the device is, and I do not know if it is a desktop or a workstation. I only mm -hmm. know this because people came to me and said, I have a problem, and I think you can solve it. Um, hmm. So I only found out that these devices were not mobile because um, I guess if we had done an analysis, we could have seen that uh, these devices never disconnected from the network, they never got different addresses, and we could just hypothesize that they were uh, workstations, physical ones. Um, but I did not, um, oh, interesting, getting a connection request uh, that is unauthorized. Speaking of, uh, oh. being on a home network. <laughs> oh. You know, my guy um, has a software for that. <laughs> that was Larry, by the way. <laughs> I was about to say, I was gonna I was ask, about to say, I was gonna ask if it was one of you guys. <laughs> I thought it was Tyler. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> Choose wisely. <laughs> yeah. So for us, uh, as I was saying, uh, we we really don't um, we don't track what the device is. Uh, we only know if it's a works to a, a a desktop version of the operating system or if it's a server. So we're learning now that some of our customers are having uh, you know these physical fixed position uh, devices that are now no longer fixed position. So let me ask another question. Is it more convenient these days that so many uh, uh, office applications are, are, are now cloud-based? Does that, does that make the road easier, or does it present different security difficulties? Yeah, um, that's, an, that's an interesting one. Um, I think it presents, uh, as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't make a difference. My my solution would be agnostic to that, but I think it presents a, a security challenge to the organizations that are trying to, to control that access. Because again, a lot of the um, a lot of the access control mechanisms that are built into the fabric of the network or the monitoring capabilities that would reside in the network uh, when your workforce disperses. Um, a lot of those are not host-based services. And again, if you're not using, uh, if you're allowing split tunneling, then you're missing the majority of that traffic, the traffic that's going uh, directly to Office 365, whereas previously it would have been, uh, you know, going through some egress gateway and you were doing DPI to inspect what the, the interactions are. Uh, you're not doing that anymore. So um, I, I imagine that this transition means that organizations are losing a lot of visibility and uh, losing control over uh, the actions that their, their, their users were previously taking. Well, that's an interesting uh, uh, tangent to go off on, too. What are the unique challenges, not just for organizations and employees, but for security teams <laughs> trying to do their job? Uh, what are, yeah, what yeah. Are some... I think mm, it's a good question. I think I think one of the things that we're going to see change here is an acknowledgement that centralized control and monitoring uh, built into 
something that requires you to be in a given physical location for it to be effective, like plugging into a network connecting to a Wi-Fi connection in a specific geography that forces your traffic through these devices, um, it has some very significant limitations when the majority of your workforce does have to uh, distribute. Uh, and this this notion that the security of a network should actually gravitate towards the the periphery, meaning the devices that consume those network resources, it's got a distinct advantage, which is the protection follows the device independent of the network that it's plugged into, independent of the geography it happens to reside in. And so this is a this is a very substantial change. Uh, we used to think of it in these terms because of cloud migrations. Uh, people are moving resources into the cloud. You can't put these sorts of network analysis and control uh, appliances into a cloud network. So where do you put this control? You put it into the device itself, the endpoint, the, the server that lives in AWS or, or Azure. But now we're seeing this exact same concern follow the desktops because they're no longer getting plugged into the corporate mm. network. Uh, so I, I, I really do have to believe that there is going to be a reconsideration <coughs> of whether access control and monitoring should live in the fabric itself or it should live in the devices that consume those resources. Make sense? Mm -hmm. It's all about the information, Absolutely. not where the <laughs> systems necessarily live, right? Yeah. Yeah, from well, a perhaps standpoint, like I, I would probably venture to say that uh, if I were doing this and I was doing this for a long-term game, I would probably be attacking those host-based systems first, setting up that persistence, and then I would lay in wait. I would have a six six month to year timer uh, that checks for the outbound IP or environment variable, so that you know you're back into the environment you're trying to get into uh, without all those controls. Uh, and and just lay in the host the host layer because like you said uh, you have the network layer that you're losing all these protections from from the outside you're losing all the access and visibility you're losing all the network control layers but that host that host is where persistence always lives and having good persistence to get back into a very stringent corporate network is ideal. I like what Tyler's saying because essentially mm. what Tyler said is that as everyone works from home. I'm going to turn everyone's computer that's now at home into a Trojan horse so that when we all bring those systems yeah. back in, yep. I'm already inside the <laughs> no. network. Although, it's uh, like the oldest method in the book. Yeah. Although if it were my time frame, given the current situation, I'd probably wait closer to 18 months to two years on yeah. the timer. Well, I'm yeah, interested. So, uh, I guess that, oh, that raises ahead, the question. Peter. How long is this going to last? How long is the mandatory work from home, this remote situation we find ourselves in? Uh, better put, uh, how many Pulse Security Weeklies are going to be everyone remote? Well, I mean, we've, we've done that for a long time, and I think the answer is it's going to vary, in my, in my personal opinion. <clears throat> I agree. I think there's going to be many organizations, right, a, a percentage, and I can't predict the percentage, that are going to be like, you know what, working from home, wasn't that bad. Maybe we were more productive. Mm -hmm. Maybe we don't need to go into the office. Maybe we learned how to utilize Zoom and adjust our processes so that we can work from home. Mm -hmm. I think there's also going to be a huge percentage that's going to be like, God, I can't wait for people to get back in the office because that's yeah. where we're Rick, productive. It's going to depend on the organization, the environment, no. and the vertical Rick, that they're Rick, in in their business. Regardless of whether or not this is over, we have now seen a monumental shift in the way we do business mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. where we're doing business from. And that is not going away. No. 
10, 10 weeks yeah. minimum is my prediction before people even consider it. 10 weeks minimum. Yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that it depends on a lot of factors, and I think that's going to vary by geographic region yep. as yep. well. And my... And, and not to, to fear monger, but I did see national news, uh, what was it, last night, and they were claims that this was fear mongering was that uh, one of the stories here in the U.S. on the national news was that uh, things will not start to return to normal until we have a vaccine and the vaccine will take 18 months to develop. Yeah, but that's uh, again, yeah. that's kind of a fear mongering type of thing. And either way, there is things will not return to normal. This is the new normal in it, which we have the ability to do so much remote telework and work from home that this is going to become a new thing that we have realized that is actually a sustainable model. I think there's a huge percentage of the population that realizes that they can work from home now that maybe didn't realize that until they were forced to do it. Right. Jeff. Yeah, yeah, it's it, well, it's weird for me because I've been working from home essentially for the last 20 years. Right. You know, working from home being I, I'm a traveling consultant. I go to the client site for weeks, you know, days and weeks on end. And when I'm not traveling, I'm at home. But I wanted to ask uh, Tyler and Joff, Peter, you can certainly weigh in, too, because we asked the question last week about sort of this, you know, from an attacker perspective uh, you know what? What are the what are the opportunities? And we've talked about how uh, attackers are going to you know are opportunistic uh, and they're going to take advantage of things. And just um, uh, dovetailing off of what uh, Tyler said a few moments ago, I'm curious. It, you know, if you're putting on your hacker attacker mindset, are you now trying to like? Uh, you know, find everybody in your neighborhood. Are you going after particular companies or are you, you know, it used to be you like, you could just go to Starbucks and see who you can get. My point being that it, it, at least in the commercial world, very few companies are specifically targeted because the attacker wants to go after that, that particular company. Mm. They just find companies that are vulnerable to the things that they can exploit and they can steal data and monetize Crime it. Crime of opportunity. How do, how does that change in this world? How, do, how does the attacker mindset change when the attack surfaces change, for lack of a better word? Uh, Joff, Tyler, Peter, because you guys weren't around last week when we were talking about this. So, so, so I think it's going to be a, uh, a crime of opportunity. And, and I think it's largely going to be driven by the fact that people's home life is going to blur into their work life. And so their machines that they take home are not 100% going to be on the VPN. And there is going to be the normal malware crimes that occur against home-based machines uh, and those driving those malware malware attacks are realize that those home-based machines very quickly realized are actually corporate machines and they're going to use it as a leverage point to uh, uh, to take it further, so it's it's going to be opportunity again, in my opinion. Um, it's just more opportunity. I I would say that the the big thing you're going to see from this is going to be a huge rise in IoT level attacks. You're going to see uh, remote exploits uh, being developed very heavily for commercial or not commercial uh, consumer grade firewalls and uh, wireless routers, and maybe things like Drobo. Which we'll cover and in the next segment. like lo local SANS <laughs> uh, backups because, again, this is an entirely different problem and situation that, that companies are going to have to deal with is 
if they're not leveraging something like a you know DFS or or some of the network file storage, uh, backing up these particular devices uh, is going to be relied on heavily at home. So you're going to have things like local network storage. You're going to have uh, external hard drives. So I think we're going to see a huge proliferation of um, kind of consumer grade malware and consumer grade exploits so that they can begin looking for those opportunities, not necessarily as targeted, but hey, we have an exploit that will pop, uh, you know, all the Linksys routers uh, or cable modems. What sits behind those? Are any of those uh, targets of opportunity that we could leverage for something big later? I guess what's scary based on what you guys are saying is that uh, I, I feel like that there's probably a lot of companies that were relatively secure, had relatively mature security programs that now are going to become targets because of the fact that their workforce and not the workforce that they originally planned on being remote workers are now remote workers and all the things that we've described rolled, rolled, rolled together. Um, yeah, they, they rel relied on layered security, and the only place where every layer was always in force was mm. if you were in the corporate environment. You had yep. inbound protections from the globally routable internet. You had outbound filtering. You had, uh, you know, host-based protections. And in concert, those all working together, you had a relatively secure security posture. Now you take that and you say all of those surrounding layers, those will never be in place, uh, well, at least for not the next 10 weeks, uh, if, if your assessment is accurate. And mm -hmm. what you have now is a lack of consistent control, lack of consistent visibility, and uh, inconsistent protection. It, it's not what it what it would have been on prem. And you know, I I, I have to have to agree with with Tyler that um, I, I think the opportunity here is how do you transition from uh, devices that are consumer devices, whether it's an IoT device or uh, you know your your iPhone or Android device, that is a, <laughs> a great point place to gain a foothold. But how do you transition into uh, the device that gets you access into that corporate resource? Um, you, you yourself don't have a VPN client that can be leveraged for it. You need to get into that workstation or that laptop to then piggyback through the VPN access. So if I were an attacker, I would be looking for these opportunities to pivot from my point of entry, like that router, as Tyler was saying, uh, in transition into the, the corporate device that gives me access to the resources I need. It, it's interesting how this situation has, uh, of course, catastrophic effects, and it's horrible. But when we put that in the lens of information security, the kind of network protections that we've relied on in some capacity really fall down and it should be forcing us to think about the applications the users and the data and organizations that have not already embraced that are going to be in a really interesting situation and perhaps at a disadvantage right how do you control which applications are authorized? How do you validate those applications, validate the users? How do you protect the data when you don't have control over where those things live? I don't know where my users are. I don't know where their machines are. I know that they use applications. I know that they have data. I'm going to protect that. And the users can be wherever they want to be. Yeah, I agree, Paul. Day, sorry, go for it. 
Um, I, I, I agree with you, Paul, because I, I think, uh, you know, given that the data was already out there primarily on mobile devices and tablets and things like that, and, and it's not a new conversation. It's been going on for several years. Sure. Protect the data, protect the data. Now maybe this situation is forcing that in a, in a, in a, in a, in a, in a positive way. Um, mm. And I... I guess I'm I'm also concerned, and I, I and I don't mean to be uh, I, I'm not a I'm not a conspiracy theorist, and I don't like throwing fud around, but I really feel like based on our conversation last week and this week that you know there are attackers out there that now really can target specific companies because they've been traditionally hidden behind layers yeah. of network security, yeah. that, but now they're out there. So like, you know, the bad guy and, and, and even, you know, we talk about hacktivism and people, uh, you know, not necessarily doing their attacking for financial gain, which is what's more likely is the case these days. But, uh, and I, I can't believe I'm saying this, but, you know, nation state actors, people that want to go after, uh, companies for whatever reason now they have a way to do that now that they now they can start targeting those companies in a way that they've never been able to before they've never let's bothered just, before. let's just do a let's do a thought exercise here right and maybe maybe mm -hmm. we can even do it with a web page to to make it more more real you know i won't do that because i don't want to put somebody's picture up but um let's say you <laughs> wanted to target uh you wanted to target red hat i'm just choosing a, a random uh, well-known company out of thin air uh and you were physically located in uh, uh the town of chelmsford massachusetts uh well you could go to linkedin and you could say search for mm -hmm. employees who list their location as chelmsford now you have right. the name of a person you know that they approximately live in chelmsford and you know they work at Red Hat. So now you simply use one of the myriad services that allows you to look up a name and a company, and it tells you their location, their physical address, their home address. You drive right. to that home address and you poke around to see what the you know Wi-Fi signal strength is if you're parked out front. The one with the strongest signal strength is likely that person's house. And now you just hammer on it until you have access to that Wi-Fi, get into the device, Presumably, they're connected over a VPN and you're done. And if you're sophisticated enough to do that, you've likely also looked at what their uh, their role was in the company. So you know that they likely have administrative credentials because they're a systems administrator and they probably also use the VPN. Yeah. So I'll, ta I'll take that a step further for you. And there are data sets and services out there that allow you to leverage different SSIDs as far as a search characteristic that can be pinpointed to a geolocation and or correlated based on an ad tracking ID. So you can get travel patterns and or, you know, all these people that had left a particular address and then went out. Uh, and then now you're seeing the same SSID beacons. Uh, you can then kind of correlate where these physical ad addresses are and start to build a target profile based on, you know, stuff all from the Internet. Wiggle, wiggle.net. I mean, this is stuff. And Larry and I, yeah. I mean, and wiggle. I mean, we started this in 2005, right, when Wi-Fi hacking was just coming on to, to be a more prominent uh, attack vector on the scene. And, like, legit, those were the days where you would have to get permission from the company to be like, I want to target your executives. We would do exactly what Tyler was talking about 15 years ago. And 15 years ago or more, the Wi-Fi networks were open. And so you'd find the executive 
it's just you know if, if they weren't open it was wep and, and then, it was and after, it was wep right time and it's osins <clears throat> that just takes on a different form to figure out like peter said where that person is target their network and then you're piggybacking on the, their vpn it, we've become full circle on that now as the situations have forced us all to work from home isn't there a uh uh um what is it um a Wi-Fi uh, WPA2 vulnerability that just came out. Uh, I seem to uh, recall. So, uh, so, uh, there, there, so Jeff Warren on your team was talking about how you don't. So, and Larry's question for you. Yep. You don't need to necessarily capture the entire WPA2 handshake nope. anymore. Nope. You. This was about a year ago, y right? Y uh, you get the PMK. Yeah, PMK ID, which yep. is uh, advertised in uh, the first of the four-way handshake. Uh, sorry, the first two of the four-way handshake. So all you need to do as uh, a potential client is go, hey, I'd like to join the network. And they go, okay, here's a packet. Let's start the authentication scheme, and here's a PMK ID. And that's all you need to be able to crack the PMK. To go into Hashcat, yeah. and we did an entire virtual training on that today on how to build a, a password cracking rig for about $6,000 uh, that mm -hmm. would include like four 1080 Ti cards, uh, and do that at a very, very rapid rate. And many of us, I mean, Tyler, Larry, I mean, you guys do, have these do, rigs do sitting it, around, do right? Do it at yeah. Amazon, too. Yep. You, or you can do it in Amazon, yep. And, uh, but so that, that's, you don't even need to do deauthentication and capture four-way handshakes. Right. You just do the authentication and capture the result, and uh, you're off to the races. There's also the new one if they're doing um, uh, called Crook. Yes. Which is a variant, variant or a, a subsequent follow-on to the crack attack mm -hmm. uh, in that uh, if you deauth a client, uh, oftentimes their transmit buffer is still filled, and you deauth them, they disconnect, they wipe the keys from memory, and then they transmit the rest of the data with default keys of all zeros. Uh, so effectively right. plain text. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Boom. Scary stuff. Now it's only 32K of data. But you just keep doing it. <laughs> lots of data, lots of data. So, so how can Edgewise help? Oh man, all this gloom so, and doom. Um, <coughs> really, uh, what we're what we're doing for customers is we're taking their desktop devices, putting it in a segment, and uh, auto segmenting it. Really, uh, and the the simple point here is that any communication that goes over the VPN, we're now verifying the identity of the software that's trying to interact with the business application over the VPN. Mm -hmm. So if, for instance, you need to give access to the ERP system, uh, we can make sure that it's, um, you know, Tom's laptop running, uh, running the, um, the SAP app that's actually uh, the fat client that's connecting over the VPN to access the SAP uh, backend. And, uh, you know, th what that effectively means is that no other software is allowed to interact in any way with that application because it's being verified uh, down to the cryptographic identity of the communicating software. And that takes that takes about, uh, you know, 30 minutes to do. It's uh, really straightforward. Typically, we would uh, put a put a segment around all the desktops, auto segment it to protect all inbound, internal and outbound connectivity. Uh, we would leave it in a simulate block mode, which is not actively blocking. It's more akin to monitoring to make sure that the policy set does what you want the policy set to do. Leave it there for about, uh, you know, uh, 
three to five days, um, you'll know very quickly if it's not doing what you intended to do or if there's a rapid rate of change in uh, sort of the applications your customers are using. Uh, and then we switch it to a, a, a full blocking mode and you're done. Now, uh, Peter, I have a question. Uh, yeah, are you validating that application? Like, are you, does Edgewise validate that whether it's the browser or the fat client that's accessing the ERP application is in fact that application and oh, when absolutely. it gets updated, right? Like that's a feature in, in Edgewise, like you can validate an application that this is really a browser. It's not someone injecting in a process or something else. Yes. It's yeah, that browser, that's a, right? That's a great point. Uh, do you mind if I share my screen quickly? No, please do. Um, so let's see. Just trying to find the, uh, the people finder app. Um, so let's see, here we go. Uh, if, if I look at like Active Directory, for instance, and I map its connections, um, yeah, to your point, uh, we're getting down to the software identity level. And yeah. so if you were to look at this, this process here, um, you can see that these are the identity properties that we're verifying on both sides of the, the, the communication to ensure that it's only the legitimate software communicating that's supposed to be soft, uh, communicating. So we do this in real time for every single connection that occurs. So in the case of, uh, let's say the LSAS process, um, what you can see here is I have some policies in place that are allowing these interactions. So if we were looking at uh, this dsreg command, um, we're verifying that it's dsreg here running on this uh, identified desktop one that's talking to this LSAS process here. Now, if, uh, you know, Patch Tuesday comes along, which it, it will, that's not going to stop, uh, you upgrade your software, what mm -hmm. happens then? A absolutely nothing. So all of the policies that are applied to this, uh, you can see it's uh, outbound allowed connectivity. Um, we are mapping together identities of like software. So this is one identity here. This is a completely distinct identity here, and we're establishing the provenance of the software. Where did the software come from? And you can see here that by verifying the, the signing certificate of the software, we can establish that it came from Microsoft and it's part of the Windows operating system, just as this one was previously. But you'll note that the SHA-256s are actually different. This is 3A, uh, this starts with E3. And so part of our patented technology is doing a similarity scoring of the software to say, you know what, there's a policy applied to this old piece of software, a new version of, of it came from Microsoft, and the code is like 90% similar. So we're just going to merge these two identities together, automatically apply the policy that was on the old one to the new one, and you are done. You did not have to lift. So, Peter, a, a nuance that I think is really important is that you're just not you're not just relying on the signing certificate in what you just said. No, no, that yes. that would that would be that would be crazy. And, and the mm. reason is this. Um, I, what I would do as an attacker, I, I love sort of putting myself in the mindset of what would I do if I if I was an attacker. Right. And my answer would be um, I would take uh, telnet.exe, which is signed by Microsoft, and I would rename it to dns.exe and replace the DNS server on your domain controller and use the telnet client as if it were a proxy to intermediate all of the DNS requests, manipulate them to then redirect all of the traffic to some other address port and protocol. And if you're just looking at who signed software or something like that, you have no idea whether it's, uh, you know, it came from the right place, but it's not the right software. Uh, uh, I can right. use yeah. an administrative tool to do bad things too.
it's a great it's a great point. There's a difference between validating the software is actually that software versus it. This is software that came from a validated place. In yeah. other words, yeah, yeah. So you you got uh, there's actually a new capability. You know, development doesn't stop just because there's a, a global pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, we're we're releasing new features all the time, and one of those new features that helps organizations uh, handle change faster um, is this thing that we're calling auto resegment. So uh, in previous shows, I've I've shown this a multitude of times, so I won't uh, uh, belabor the point. But uh, we've taken micro segmentation and network protections and reduced it to a single click action literally a button that says auto segment. And um, so what we're doing now is as the environment changes, how do you accommodate that change uh, without having to manage a lot of policies? So um, what, what we're doing now is something called auto resegment. Uh, Active Directory here has already been auto segmented. And after you auto segment, the button changes to say auto resegment. So let me show you what this actually does. It's it's kind of interesting. Um, if I take a completely new piece of software that has never been seen in the environment, mm -hmm. uh, we're gonna call it new app 4444, and we're gonna point it at an AD server, and we're gonna put it at port 389, something like that. And maybe we point it at port 88 as well. Um, they're both part of the LSAS process. Now, this new app has never been seen before. Um, and what we want to do is we want to accommodate these behaviors. And what you can see here is that this new app, which may be malicious, it may not be malicious, uh, it's never been seen before. Uh, it is blocked by default, as you would expect, because we've got this whole segment protected. Now, how do I know what policy to modify and how do I know how to modify it? Well, this is a classic example of an ML problem. So what we're telling you here is this was blocked. It's not part of the policy set. And the reason it was blocked was because of the default actions of Active Directory. So what do you do? Well, what you do is uh, my Zoom toolbar is always in the way. Um, getting used to this remote work thing. Right. So you come back to the Active Directory and you click Auto Resegment. It confirms your protection, inbound, outbound, and internal, covering every single path of communication, even communications that go over, over loopback, IPv6, IPv4, over your VPN connection. It doesn't matter what it is. The connections are verified. And you reaffirm that. And what it does is it takes this and it says, hey, this is the policy that needs to be modified. This is how it needs to be modified. And you are literally done. The only thing you need to do is click auto resegment and the entire process is complete. Now, you could also just <coughs> um, ignore this and say, I don't I don't care about that change. Uh, you can see that there's a path that's being blocked that hasn't yet been assigned. Um, you could uh, click the auto assign and it takes care of building the policy set out for you. And now all you need to do is click that auto resegment and you are done. Pretty cool, right? Fantastic. That's awesome. Of course, so you did all this following change control procedures, right? Of course. Absolutely. You would always follow change control procedures, especially, you know. Because uh, you, you, know, you wouldn't want to put your PCI compliance at risk. That's right. <laughs> or pre prevent someone from working. In any case, Peter, thank you so much uh, yeah, for coming pleasure. on Paul's Security Weekly. On. Securityweekly.com forward slash edgewise. Make sure you uh, check it out. Uh, obviously, fantastic stuff. And you can get into even more detail 
uh, than Peter just went into in the quick kind of three-minute uh, demo that he did. So, Peter, again, it's always wonderful having you on the show. It was a fantastic discussion. And with that, we'll take a short break. Come back with security news for this week. Stay tuned.